Milk Punch, Hot Flips, and Cranberry Shrub. We're getting into the colonial spirit with some 18th century drinks on this episode of The Barstool Historian. From New York, New York, and Geneva, Illinois, the Sodom and Gomorrah of modern times, it's the Bar's Tool Historian Podcast, broadcasting from the Lion's Arms Tavern, our digital tap room. This is John in New York. Here with me, as always, in New York is Timothy. Hello, Tim. Howdy. Uh, and on the Geneva, Illinois side of the bar, as always, is Ed. Hello, Ed. Well met, old fellow. Well, we are coming back from a long break. We took the holidays off. I have come back with a bit of a cold, and that's why my uh, voice sounds so crummy. Tim, you're also a little under the weather as well. Indeed. I I had the flu, um, and that was compounded by the fact that I mistakenly um, took a wrong turn here at the Lion's Arms and wound up uh, walking into a wardrobe <laughs> and then walking into a garbage disposal and then was transported to 1790s Pitcairn Island <laughs> where I discovered the nefarious Fletcher Christian and his band of, of thieving pirates, <laughs> bandits, and uh, so forth. And... Um, the demon seed that has given <laughs> that has given birth to many generations of freaks. Um, <clears throat> yeah, um, I, I now know why. So I found my way back, and I'm sorry I couldn't make the interview, et cetera, and so forth. Um, Ed, how's it going? <laughs> I, I think I think the barstool historian temporarily turned into a beat poetry uh, st- yeah, <laughs> session. Absolutely. <laughs> What's, what's, wait, what, this is this is what, Tim with influenza. Uh, in any case, uh, I'm I'm doing uh, I'm doing better. I just recovered from uh, Disney World over Christmas break with five children. Is uh, yeah. Needless to say, it was it was fun. It was exhausting, and I'm not going on a big trip for another <laughs> six months. So. so we just barely survived the holidays then. But one of the things that made our holidays a lot more merry was this new book that came out about a couple of months ago, a book called Colonial Spirits. It's basically a cookbook slash history book, uh, and it is the focus of this episode. We actually had the privilege of uh, speaking with the author, Stephen Grass, and the illustrator, Reverend Michael Allen, earlier this week. Tim was stuck in his... uh, Vortex, unfortunately, and was not able to join us. Um, there was no cure for flu, by the way. <laughs> that was part of the problem. Uh, but you, dear listeners, will be able to be there and, and relive the experience with us because uh, we're going to uh, share a recording of our conversation uh, with Mr. Grass and Mr. Allen. I, I, I don't know if we ever did get the answer to uh, the Reverend's ordinate, ordination status uh, or if that was just a, merely an honorific, uh, the, his Reverend title. But. Well, yeah, I'm disappointed we, that we <laughs> weren't instructed to, to address him as uh, Reverend Michael. But, um, uh, but before we go any further, I want to make sure we don't forget one of our rituals here, and that is to... Uh, talk about what we're drinking right now. Tim, what about you? Well, I want to say that, and I don't want to um, get ahead of things or, you know, spoiler alert or any of that, but I do want to say that um, Ed very uh, intuitively gained credibility in this interview by presenting certain spirits that um, are contained in the book. And I, I, I likened it, as I told John, to the stereotypical uh, cinematic depiction of the Plains Indian <laughs> and, the, and the soldier from way back when, you know, uh, F Troop, so to speak, where they present the tasseled hat in order to gain the favor 
and the credi- credibility with the Plains Indian. And I think that that was a great foundation for launching the interview. So I, I, I did not meet them, but I feel compelled to also gain such credibility since they'll be listening to this podcast. And I am drinking a makeshift concoction known as the Devil's Bang, <laughs> which, um, which is uh, hard cider and spiced whiskey. And um, it's not terribly good, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in keeping with the, with with the spirit of today's podcast and with the interview, and in order to gain some traction with these wonderful fellows, I thought I'd better uh, I'd better join the uh, join the gang. So that's what I'm drinking, and I've kind of replaced the spiced whiskey with uh, what we've discussed in the past: the Balvenie Double Wood, aged twelve oh. years. And um, there is a certain essence of the tavern in this, and uh, you can be transported back to uh, to those days when when we were designing America intoxicated. So <laughs> wasted. Well, yeah. Ed, what about you? I'm pretty sure you've got something <coughs> elaborate. I don't actually. What? Uh, I, I I yeah. I, I don't. I'm I am actually. I, I I still have the 1775 uh, punch. I still have the <clears throat> Ben Franklin's milk punch made with ass milk, and uh, <laughs> I, I I I got all that. But I decided to actually just have an Alesmith Brewing Company out of I think San Diego, nut brown English style ale. So not too mm. different than the stock ale. Uh, I was out. I would have made this a cocktail, but I was out of chicken stock, so unfortunately, I had to. It's just beer. Well, mine is not too far off. I didn't have a whole lot of time before running off to record this, so I grabbed a Brooklyn Brown Ale, but I've turned it into a spruce beer, uh, thanks to the uh, little bottle of spruce extract that I have. And um, I think I, I got the combination just right. I just added a couple of drops so that it doesn't taste too much like, like a cleaning product. And yes, I think, it's, I, th- I think it's pretty good. I still think it might be a little better if it was just Brooklyn Brown Ale. But, I, <laughs> I, <laughs> but you know, I, I wanted to get into the colonial spirit. Well, fellows, uh, before we jump into the uh, the interview with Stephen Grass and Reverend Michael Allen, I just wanted to bring up a little list that is contained within this book, Colonial Spirits. And it's a it's an actually an excerpt from a piece written by Benjamin Franklin. It's a list of a very long list of synonyms that Benjamin Franklin compiled. Synonyms for drunkenness. This is a selection from Benjamin Franklin's Drinker's Dictionary, first published January 6, 1737. He is addled, casting up his accounts. He's afflicted, he's in his airs. He's biggie, bewitched, block and block. Boozy, bowed, Ben at Barbados, hissed in the brook. Drunk as a wheelbarrow, burdock, busky, buzzy, has stole a matchet. Out of the brewing basket. His head is full of bees. He's been in the bibbing pot. Has drank more than he has bled. He's had a thump over his head with Samson's jawbone. Wobble crop. Halfway to Concord. In his has head. taken a chirping glass. Cut his capers. Cookie. He's been in the cellar. He's non-compost. Been too free with the creature. Sir Richard has taken off his considering cap. He's chat-fallen. Killed his dog. Took his drop. It is a dark day with him. He's a dead man. Has dipped his He's Prince Eugene. He's dag. He's eaten toad and half a brick in his element. Will in for it. Owes no man a farthing. Then to France. Then to a funeral. His flag is out. Fuzzled. Then that's an Indian feast. He's glad. Throatable. Gold-headed. Glazed. Boozed the gauge. As dizzy as a goose. Ben before George. Got the gout. As a kick in the guts. Ben with Sir John Goa. Globular. Got the glanders. Got on his little hat. Haunted with evil spirits. Taken Hippocrates' grand elixir. Going to Jerusalem, then to Jericho. Juicy, clips the king's English. Seen the French, kicked the king is his cousin. He makes indentures with his legs. He sees the moon. He quarrels. Then among the fast, he meets a pudding bag. He's got his top 
gallant sails up, like Ben and two three with Sir John Strother. He's right in the sun, with all his sudden sails up, trammel, swallowed a tavern token, makes Virginia fence, Ben at Geneva, the malt is above the water. He sees the bears out of the way. Any favorites on that list? Yes. Let me see. Some of my favorite are uh, he had a thump over the head with Samson's jawbone. <laughs> Halfway to Concord. He's he's eat a toad and a half for breakfast. Yes, I love that. Has, has taken Hippocrates' great elixir. Oh, I was going to say that. And uh, he's right before the wind with all his studding sails out. I have a few that I highlighted in my book here. Sir Richard has taken off his considering uh, cap. You don't. <laughs> it begs the question, who is this Sir Richard? And I'll just do one more favorite. Got the glanders. <laughs> what? Yes. I would Google glanders, but I'm afraid what kinds of ads uh, would be served. Going to Jerusalem is kind of fun, and I, I'm assuming that has something to do with meeting your maker. Those are all great uh, euphemisms, fellows, but I think there's, there's one true winner out of this list, and that is Ben to Geneva. Two guys from Geneva, Illinois. What else could we choose? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> there's one that um, it so rings true today, especially if you're Irish and um, <laughs> an Irish relative has passed been to a funeral uh, <laughs> certainly resonates all the night that patty murphy died is a night i'll never forget some of the boys got a load of drunk and they ain't got sober yet as long as a bottle was passed around every man was feeling gay O'Leary came with a bagpipe some music for to play that's how they showed their respect for patty murphy that's how they showed our guests today, author Stephen Grass and illustrator Reverend Michael Allen, have created this fantastic new book, Colonial Spirits, which is a recipe book slash history book that introduces us to dozens of recipes for colonial era drinks. And the full title, I think, Ed, you can recite this better than I can because it's a long one. Do you want to give that a go? A toast to our drunken history. Being a revolutionary drinking guide to brewing and batching, mixing and serving, imbibing and jibing, fighting and freedom in the ruins of the ancient civilization known as America. (laughs) (laughs) Before we turn it over to Stephen and uh, the Reverend Michael, I'd love to talk a little bit about this book, guys. I was in love with this book. This book was was many things. It's a cookbook. It's a history book. It's a humor book, and it is gorgeously illustrated uh, throughout yes. uh, throughout the whole book. The, the artwork. How would, I, how would I describe it? It it is reminiscent of colonial era folk art if it were melded with the New Yorker cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> John, I, I would say that uh, we are bibliophiles here at Barstool, and I know our listeners are. And as you said, this is a beautiful book to look at. And it is, to your point, irreverent. And that bespeaks the history, because the spirits and the recipes tell the true tale of American history in a very honest way, and in some cases, in a sardonic way. And I think (laughs) it bears repeating to everyone that spirits are also referred to as the truth serum. (laughs) And sometimes when people drink too much, they actually tell the truth. And uh, I think that 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 has a place here because uh, it peels away some of the mythology of of American history in, in a really insightful and fun way. And the artwork complements that uh, that writing style. And there are many hidden secrets of the American story in this book that you wouldn't read elsewhere in uh, just a, a, an orthodox uh, history book. I think it, it, when, when you travel and you imbibe the local drinks and you eat the local food, you are becoming part of the culture. And with this book, you can imbibe and become part of American history. Ed, anything to add to that? It is just such a funny book. That's what I really wasn't expecting. The comedy of the illustrations and the prose is is fantastic. 
talking about temperance. They have a, a list who's who among the boring American temperance nerds calling out <laughs> to increase Mather and Dr. Benjamin Rush. Again, I, I guess the illustrations, American folk art, uh, but there's so many references to uh, William Hogarth through it too, which is, uh, is, is interesting <laughs> as well. You know, and it's not, I should point out to our temperate listeners, this is not all booze. You can, for example, get the recipe for a switchel, which is uh, vinegar and what else uh, is there, John? Uh, switchel is apple cider vinegar and molasses ginger. And it's sort of like a primordial ginger ale, but <laughs> much stronger and much better tasting, in my opinion. <laughs> so uh, you can get the recipe for that and uh, a favorite to uh, the Dirty Minds out there. Uh, second to cock ale is uh, ass's milk, which apparently people would drink. And ass's milk, meaning actual milk produced by a donkey, uh, they give you the recipe for artificial ass's milk, which I made. And I uh, fed to my daughter, uh, Matilda. Uh, it's essentially uh, sweet skim milk. Well, we had a great conversation with these two guys. They are truly renaissance men. Stephen is the founder of Quaker City Mercantile, a creative agency that caters exclusively to the drinks industry and also creates its own products, including the highly regarded brands like Sailor Jerry Rum and Art in the Age Spirits. The Reverend Michael Allen, in addition to being an extremely talented illustrator, also played a major role in researching and recreating the many, many recipes that are contained within this book. In this interview, uh, they were very excited to tell us about uh, their new lemon shrub and old Dutch beverages, which are right now being test marketed in Philadelphia and Denver, as you will hear. So thank you guys for joining the Barstool Historian. We absolutely love this book. It made our holidays uh, much more merry. Um, I'd like to hear from you, Stephen, uh, a little bit about how this book came to, into being. Oh, well, uh, okay. So I guess about a year and a half ago, we get a, I got a phone call from uh, Abrams Books in New York, which um, is an esteemed publisher. And they said, hey, do you want to do a book? And I said, well, sure. <laughs> um, they originally wanted to do it based on our Art in the Age brand. But I thought it would be a better idea to do it based on the uh, recipes that Art in the Age was based on. Um, so I had been exploring. Uh, I, I'm a big history buff, particularly a Philadelphia history buff. And history in Philadelphia really, you know, goes from the 1640s when it was uh, New Sweden. Um, you know, and, and big, big in the colonial era. So we we focused on that time period. And, uh, and I worked with Michael here because we've worked together for about 16 years. Michael did all the art for the, uh, art in the age brand and the initial recipes. Um, yeah, for the hang tags. Yeah. So, uh, but also no, even like on, uh, the rhubarb tea, you, you oh, actually yeah, the, uh, did the, the pre-batching. Original. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we got together and, and it was interesting because we, uh, we built the book based on something we had been working together on for eight years. So it was quite easy to put it together. And um, we have a, uh, our company, we uh, Quaker City Mercantile, we've been in business for 29 years. Uh, we only focus on the spirits industry, beer and wine. Um, and we have a staff of 65 people. So um, the book was a communal effort with many uh, – many hands researching and me slave driving. Um, and uh, every Friday, Michael would come in with a, uh, Michael not only did the, did the illustrations, but the recipes. So Michael would come in with a tray of cocktails. <laughs> We'd get all liquored up every Friday. And it was uh, the best part of my week. Yeah, sounds like hard work. Yeah. yeah <laughs> so this is really like your life's work uh, in book form. Ah, uh, it's, yes, it's, it's the best part of my life in book form. Yes. I mean, it's, it's, and I think the book's really interesting because this book has been written many times before. It's, uh, you know, literally since the, uh, late 1800s, there have been books coming out about colonial drink recipes. Um, what makes ours unique is that we 
painstakingly took each recipe and translated it into modern ingredients. And, and like we looked at the ancient measurements and were able to figure out what they'd actually meant and how to make them. So, so the bottom line is you can make them at home um, as opposed to, uh, for instance, the, the recipe for cock ale requires a, a full hogshead barrel and <laughs> played and beaten cock uh, in a barrel with fermented ale and spices. So we kind of figured out how to do it so you didn't have to flay your cock. <laughs> Uh, so, so Michael, I, I, we did a little uh, research on your work online. We saw the beautiful work that you do in, in creating family trees and, um, and certificates. And, you know, I was really intrigued by uh, your style, which seems to be inspired by colonial folk art. Um, at least in a, it, to me it does. Could you tell me a little bit about uh, the inspiration for the, the illustrations that you've done and, and then the rest of your work? Yeah, sure. Um I think it goes hand in hand with the history that I'm interested in. Um, I think I just have like a real old soul and I appreciate kind of classic art to begin with. I'm not really that into trends. I just like what I like to do and I stick with it. Um, and a lot of the work that I've, I've done with Steve, you know, goes back to that history. A lot of Pennsylvania, Dutch, mm -hmm. folk art. Um, and then just my personal preferences, I enjoy like old manuscripts, uh, alchemy, um, esoteric alphabets, codes. Um, it's just interesting. We have similar tastes. Yeah, absolutely. And and it it's a mind melt. So yeah. like you draw the stuff that I'm yeah. interested in, and it's yeah. it's just very lucky that we met. Um, Michael's a very dear friend of my wife's, and that's how we met. Okay. Uh, so we've been working together for 16 years. Yeah, a long time. Yeah. It's 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 similar to how uh, this podcast got started. Ed and I have been friends uh, since we were uh, fourteen years old. We That's bonded good. we bonded over a love of history. And our uh, colleague who couldn't join us for this interview, uh, you know, we've been friends for for twenty odd years. And history was the bond that brought us together. That's great. You know, it's in, um, uh, Pennsylvania Dutch, and I, we're drinking here Old Dutch, which is one of our new products. Alcohol. Oh, wow. Birch beer, oh, and a lemon shrub, which you we have shrub recipes in the in Colonial Spirit, so we are drinking right. versions of our book. Anyway, I was going to say <clears throat> Pennsylvania Dutch. My family on my dad's side is Pennsylvania Dutch. Going way back, my family came to Philly in 1708. Pennsylvania Germans, and um, <clears throat> is your is your family history? Are you are you? Uh, yeah, we have some German. Um, like Austrian, Croatia. But, but what's kind of cool is in Philly, no one ever, well, it's changed now. It used to be no one ever came here unless you were born here. Yeah. Now you, these, <laughs> now you got all these New Yorkers coming here. Yeah. We, we got to teach them a lesson because, you know, anyway. Um, <laughs> it used to be that every, like the town I grew up in, everyone had, uh, uh, it was like five last names, Yoder, Moyer, Landis, yeah. Uh, Gerhardt, and you knew, like, I could tell where you were from based on your last name, Gottschall. Like, I was like, oh, you're from you're from my town. Um, so it's not just that it's, uh, you know, uh, the drink, like, we, we did a um, an event recently uh, with some very snooty bartenders, mm -hmm. and they were trying to school us on, on what shrubs were, or they were trying oh to be more goodness. authentic than we were. And what's really <laughs> funny was, I was like, you know, you can have your handlebar mustache and <laughs> sideburns and your apron and live in Brooklyn, but this isn't trendy for us. This is our, this is my family's heritage. And a lot of it started with my mom's recipes that she got from her grandmother Interesting. and her great-grandmother. And that's what's interesting. And we approach the book not as a cocktail book, but as a as a culinary folksy recipe book, more akin to we always say it's more like a Betty Crocker cookbook from the 50s yeah, totally. than it is a, a snooty uh, cocktail book, which has which we call cocktail porn photos in it, which yeah. we, we purposely set out to not have photos in the book because we wanted it to feel very different and and didn't want it to be like 
like, oh, we're trying to be trendy mixologists. I refuse to say mixologists. I always just call them bartenders. Yeah. <laughs> so, so your 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 sources, a lot of them were just local sources around Philadelphia. Yes. Were there any other uh, any other research old books that you? So, uh, and I know I know Michael's the same too. Like I I spent a lot of time reading history books. Um, and that's where a lot of ideas start. Uh, but then like, um, it, it's funny, my mom's in, in, uh, it's called the Kansha Hoppen Folk Society. And then there's the Schwankfelder Mennonite Folk Society. Like I, I look at all these sources and you have to go there, but it's usually the basement of some old church. Um, <laughs> then also, uh, you know, there's the, 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 many assorted history museums in Philadelphia and surrounding areas. But then you get down to it too. It's a lot of crazy shit on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, sure, did you make any discoveries in the process of making this book about just what the drinking life was of your average colonial man that may have surprised you? Oh, hell yeah. They were, they were pissed all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Morning, noon, night. And I, I'm trying to figure out like, like, were they, did they have a, were they eating such hearty, fat-rich diets that the alcohol got absorbed? And I really don't drunk? know how they got anything done. Or were they like just I, fucking drunk all the time? Like, not just the days, I mean. Because you wake up, like, it's funny, because, like, sometimes I'll have a, a, a Sunday, I'll have, like, a noon beer. Yeah. And I want to take a nap, right? But these guys were drinking, like, their, and kids were drinking their morning dram, like they drink whiskey they in the morning. revolution. They found their country. And then they were drinking hard cider yeah. all day long. Like, I don't know how they were standing. I don't know either. Real pros. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But, so, speaking of which, what, what's the most skull rattled uh, you guys got researching this book? And what, what was the uh, culprit? Well, it's funny you mentioned the skull rattle, the rattle skull, because that, that, I like that recipe quite a lot, and I can drink a lot of that. Yeah, this will sneak up on you. Yeah, yeah. Um, because it, it, it wasn't um, – I think a lot of the punches too. I get this crazy sugar rush, and a lot of the punches give you that – they give you a wicked hangover because they're so high in mm -hmm. sugar content. Mm -hmm. But they're also really high in alcohol, and they yeah. go down easy. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, all of it, there's, there's so many good, good recipes in the book. As far as the uh, Applejack, <laughs> the, you were a little coy in your description of Applejack about whether or not we should, we should try it. You gave a warning, uh, but well, we were saying you don't want to Apple, you don't want to Jack apples the way, you know, they used to, they used yeah. to which is to. <laughs> To, to, to you need first of all we don't get cold nights anymore because of global warming <laughs> the way you make applejack back in the day was you how, how do you do it you let it sit out and it's it like in a barrel and it would freeze and then you pour off the alcohol and, yeah so, yeah. You, you, so the alcohol there's really no way to monitor what the you're alcohol making. rises so the alcohol's at the top the alcohol doesn't freeze so the alcohol doesn't freeze yeah so the apple fermenting in the freezes, barrel and the alcohol the hard alcohol uh doesn't liquid so you pour that off yeah but what happens is the the heads and the tails. It, it, a yeah, lot you of can't impurities. split the heads and hearts and tails like you would with a you know a modern still. And those so, impurities can can make you go blind. Yeah. So basically, the same <laughs> the same risks as with moonshine. So I should just apply the same. Yeah. Uh, yes. Caution. Yes. <laughs> well, Ed lives in the uh, tundra of northern Illinois, and uh, he's got some ideas for. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, could, I have some. Yeah, I have some cider uh, brewing in the basement, so yeah, it wouldn't be a problem for me to. Are you gonna put it outside? And are you gonna jack your apples? Yeah, I, I might. <laughs> so you, what you're saying is blindness. Right? I mean, that's the worst thing that can happen, right? You know. Well, we also have a recipe in the um, in the book uh, for making alcohol out of wood, which we don't give you the full recipe. So I was reading <laughs> over. You read this every year in the newspapers, somewhere like in Poland or Pakistan or India. You get like 50 people dying of alcohol poisoning. What it is is some idiots made alcohol out of wood. So they get methanol instead of ethanol. And ethanol will kill you. Yeah. And I guess the thing is when you drink when you drink alcohol made of methanol, I guess you can't taste it. I don't know. And so you drink it and you think you're fine. 
but then something in that either makes you go blind or just die. So, um, so I should pass on the uh, on the Jersey Lightning. Okay. Nothing off. <laughs> Duly noted. <laughs> uh, on the subject of cider, the the I enjoyed that cider chapter the most, especially kind of in your description of how cider was our country's national drink, and people had the same kind of local pride of their their cider that that people in Europe would have for their wine. Do you think we can get that back? I think there's there's making you know there's huge inroads into getting it back. Um, I mean, once again though, you've got the big the big brewers. Uh, like Angry Orchard or there's, there's, you know, the big guys are making what's probably a malt beverage flavor with apple. Uh, but I think there's enough good brands out there. Like I know up in New Hampshire, there's quite a few, um, like I think it's called Farnham Hill where they're using a lot of heirloom apples. Um, I think it's also a great incentive to, to plant, to get our apple diversity back. Cause I think, um, right now we basically have granny Smith's and, uh, Red Delicious, and there used to be hundreds of different kinds of apples. Yeah, I th- think you did. You say around f- several thousand different varieties. Yeah. And now it's 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 come down to only a couple hundred, and of that, the National Apple Cartel has only identified. I think it's really good for our biodiversity. Yeah. You know, uh, craft spirits and craft craft brewing have really brought back. Um, some much needed biodiversity in our, you know, in our, because the heart of it, they're agricultural products. Um, it, it's interesting too, to know, um, we, we were doing another interview and, and we came to the realization that we've come full circle because mm-hmm. our book is basically craft, the craft brewing movement. Mm-hmm. And then we went through the, this is pre-industrialization, so we've gone through industrialization, and now we're going back yeah. to, uh, you know, to to a craft movement uh, by choice now, as opposed to our book is when it was by necessity, you know, which is very exciting to me. It, it's interesting. Uh, you talked a little bit about, about how German immigrants played a role in um, displacing cider. What was the relationship okay. there? I mean, cider was you making stuff out of what's around, uh-huh. what was around, kinds of apples. Um, and it's interesting too. I mean, whiskey came about because, uh, the, the Brits cut off our sugar supply. Mm -hmm. So, um, we were making, um, rum out of molasses brought up from the Caribbean. It's called the triangular trade. So we had, uh, molasses being brought up. It was being distilled into rum in, in, in New England. And then they'd ship the rum to, um, to Europe and Africa and buy slaves with it and start the whole cycle all over again. Um, cider was displaced by beer when German immigrants started coming. They didn't want to drink cider. They wanted to drink beer and they had to know how, how to make it. And they started uh, brewing what we know now as lager. Before then, they had ales. Um, yeah, so it just slowly, slowly petered out. I guess it just lost uh, favor. If you went back to a colonial, a typical colonial tavern, uh, what kind of, uh, how, how would the array of uh, available drinks compare to what we have now? More or less? Or I think it'd be very, very less. much less. Yeah. It would be, if you went to a tavern, cider was a peasant's drink. Yeah, I think you'd be able to get like ale and... Uh, and, and you'd be able to get uh, Madeira. Um, you'd be yeah, able to get fortified wines, but they would be very expensive. And then you could um, – there would be a, a punch, but punch was also more expensive. So it was pretty much uh, rum uh, and and um, cider and ale and – Brandy. Brandy. Um, they didn't have brands like we had brands. And the cocktail wasn't even invented yet. So yeah. it was just uh, pretty basic. But like a, a punch bowl, would they serve that at a tavern or would that be more of a like a – Dinner it's party. pretty like fancy stuff. It was fancy stuff. Yeah, like yeah. taverns were more hubs for like everything. Because like, the punch bowl was, office, was when you were rich enough to houses. Yeah, the punch bowl was when you were rich enough to have oranges and things. Yeah, right? yeah, citrus. Yeah, so the so the tavern was scruffy, very scruffy. <laughs> yeah. Well, for the the non drinkers among our audience, if if they exist, um, I have to ask you about yeah, I don't my think favorite. They do. <laughs> I have to ask about my favorite uh, non alcoholic beverage in the book, and that's the Switchel. Yeah. Um, 
I I love it. I live in Brooklyn, and, and so, of course, there are coffee shops in the area that sell Switchell. But uh, So I scoffed at it for a long time, but I actually had it, and it's really delicious. And it sort of feels like the classy forerunner of uh, the soft drinks that we enjoy uh, right now. Who, who was drinking Switchell? And what, what was the, uh, where would you have drunk Switchell? Out in the fields, in a tavern? Michael, why don't you say quickly what a Switchell is? Uh, Switchell is, it's a, yeah, it's a non-alcoholic beverage to do with vinegar, ginger, molasses, um, super hydrating. And it was primarily drunk by the field workers. It was, it was Gator- Gatorade. Gatorade, yeah. Haymaker's Punch <laughs> is another name. So you go out Switchell. and basically die sowing the, sowing the fields and uh, they'd serve you Switchell because it would rehydrate you. Yeah. And it, it like hits all the flavors, you know, it's the bitter, it's sweet, tart. Um, like C was saying, citrus is expensive, but vinegar is very easy to make. Yeah. And vinegar provides the same kind of like tartness that a, a lemon would. Um, yeah, it's, it is a, it is a great recipe. We had to do a T we did a TV show in Washington, DC morning show. And they wanted to talk about the book, but we weren't allowed to talk about alcohol. Oh my goodness! Which was really. <laughs> but we spent we spent our precious three seven minutes, minutes, three and a half yeah. minutes, talking about Switchell and shrubs. Shrubs. Oh my goodness! Because <laughs> yeah. there is a whole chapter on temperance drinks in here. Yeah. But you know what's what's great with a Switchell? Booze. Oh. <laughs> so it's a glass of rum in it. Yeah. Oh yeah. You put rum in the Switchell. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I actually made a cranberry uh, shrub over uh, over uh, Christmas, and that's what I was kind of thinking. Like, boy, this would taste good with some some booze in it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you guys had to choose some favorite drinks for different occasions, for a cold winter's day in January, but what's your go-to drink, Stephen and Mike? Uh, what was that one we had? Hot butter, hot butter rum. Oh. Yeah. It's really that good. is excellent. I made that over Christmas. <laughs> it put me in a diabetic coma, but it was great. <laughs> well, it's hard to go wrong with the with um, the butter. Yeah, any of the hot drinks I love. Yeah, the toddies are really. Good. I made a really great toddy with them. Um, we came out with a liquor called Sweet Lips that was based on Martha Washington's Cherry Bounce recipe, mm-hmm. and that makes an excellent hot toddy. So some water, citrus juice. Uh, I did a little grated ginger in it, honey. Yeah, that's that's really nice. So perfect for flu season, then basically. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> that's what I should be drinking right now. Um, yeah. How about the hot day in August? What would you go to? Switchel. Yeah, the switchels and shrubs are really good. We have. Uh, we're also drinking the Benjamin Franklin Milk Punch, oh. yes. which I think is just all seasons good. I mean, it has that kind of limoncello vibe, and iced. It's great. Yeah, um, it's really good. Yeah, it's really good. And it's really weird how you make it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, that was so bizarre watching it when you say it. When you say it's washed, I didn't really realize what that meant until I made it. it, no, it and, I made it. Yeah, and then like it, it just comes out. The brown just, just washes out. I'll tell you, if you let that bottle settle, um, it will clear. It will clarify itself. Yeah, it was. And and when I served it to guests, they were asking, should should we shake it up? You should before drinking it or do you just drink the clarified part i think the ultimate like goal is to get it as clear as possible i mean these things are homemade so i don't mind a little bit of like variance in my batches but um yeah the curtains i don't think really lend anything to the flavor of it it's just there to kind of soak out the impurities of cheap brandy it was amazing it was it got a very divided reaction to it some people liked it others said it uh, tasted too much like pledge but I might have put, put too much of the, uh, very lemony. I, yeah. Yeah, I might have put too much of the uh, lemon zest in it. <laughs> you said you made your milk punch with ass's milk, right? Yes, I did. And then I you did. used uh, skim milk in that recipe? Skim milk and then, yeah, the sugar and, yeah, the whole way. I think I I thought... making that milk punch again with full fat milk because it will have, it, like, the, you'll get more curds. Yeah, I would think the uh, full fat is what you yeah. need. See, I tried, I tried to be, you know, special and, and clever. I like that resourcefulness. Yeah, bite, bites me in the ass. So I'm going to take yeah. the milk punch, and I'm going to mix it with the Quaker City Malt Lemon Shrub. <laughs> for a local market. 
And, and what's the other one? Uh, old. Old Dutch. Old Dutch. Which is birch beer. And we can find this in uh, our local Whole Foods. In Philadelphia or... and Denver are two test markets. Oh, Philadelphia and Denver. Okay. Well, it's worth a road trip. I'm, I'm oh, guessing. my God. This is amazing. This is so good. <laughs> ah, <laughs> well, uh, be- before we close, guys, I have to ask you if you have a favorite euphemism from drunkenness from Benjamin Franklin's uh, list of euphemisms. Oh. Yes, I do. Wait, I'm gonna I'm gonna quickly find them. Um, I think there's so many good ones in there. Let's see. Ben to Geneva. Oh, what that thing? is our favorite. That is <laughs> our favorite. Ben to Geneva. Because we, we, we... <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm literally in Geneva, Illinois, right now. Yeah, Geneva. <laughs> that's that's where we grew up. We, we grew up in Geneva, Illinois. <laughs> Oh, great. Well, thank you guys so much for making time for us. Um, this has been a real treat for us to, to talk to you guys and to hear about the process of making this book. I hope everybody buys it for their family and friends on St. Patrick's Day. It's good, it's good for Valentine's <laughs> Day. Valentine's it's Day, good too. For Day. It's good for uh, Flag Day, Easter. Jane Austen's birthday, whenever that is. <laughs> and, and Inauguration Day, because you're going to need it. You we're going to need it. <laughs> so we didn't just read this book we also were active participants or at least ed was uh, and to a very large extent ed was a uh Uh, became a colonial drinks expert himself during the process of reading this book. So when we joined these guys, Ed was uh, enjoying several of his homemade colonial beverages, including, what was the one that you had? (coughs) (laughs) Well, John, I think you would be feeling a little better if you had a big mug of cock ale. That's (laughs) right. One of the first recipes in the book is cock ale, and I will take a, uh, a snippet of uh, the original cock ale recipe. Take five gallons of ale and a large cock. The older, the better. Parboil the cock, flay him, and stamp him with a stone mortar till his bones are broken. You must crawl and gut him when you flay him. Then put the cock into one quart of sack and put to it one and a half pounds of raisins of the sun stoned, <laughs> some blades of mace, and a few cloves. Put all of these into a canvas bag, and a little before you find the ale has done working, put the ale and bag together into a vessel. In a week or nine days' time, bottle it up, fill the bottle, but just above the neck, and give it the same time to ripen as other ale. That is a... Uh, that's an actual recipe. That the original one actually wasn't five gallons. It was a hogshead of oh, uh, God. Uh, ale, I, I believe. Right. Uh, in any case, uh, they actually walk you through how to make the chicken stock. So you're not actually flaying old cocks uh, for this uh, recipe. Uh, but the mock cock ale, I believe, has it's a nice brothy uh, beer. It's not. It's not too bad. At all. So you would be using a synthetic cock for this, then? Yes, exactly. You wouldn't really... You wouldn't <laughs> yes, be... Uh, the elixir of love. <laughs> yes, exactly. Fake cock is what it's all about in this Well, it case. was... Th- this was considered to be an aphrodisiac of some kind, correct? Yes. It was, cock ale was, <clears throat> was considered the antidote to coffee. <laughs> I think the uh, phrase, the par- to paraphrase what, what they said in the book was... Um, in colonial times, they said something like, when your man can't stand it up, uh, in, in case you didn't get the inference, it what it stood for, uh, people should probably pick up on that. But uh, And so, Ed, you actually recorded some taste testing, some taste testing sessions? I did inflict my drink making on <laughs> my wife, my daughter. She only had the non-alcoholic kind. And uh, my friends, uh, Shanti and Laura. <laughs> Alongside the cock ale that I was drinking during that interview with uh, Stephen and the Reverend, 
I also made a 1775 punch, which was excellent and well-received. I made artificial asses milk, which my daughter Matilda thought was, was nice. I made a cranberry shrub, which also got positive reviews. I just want to try it already. Okay, what does it look like? What, what color is this drink? Red. All right. Is it a little fizzy? Yeah, fizzier than soda. All right. You want to give it a shot? on my tongue. What do you think of it? Tastes sweet. Kind of sour. Tastes kind of like cherry. Awesome. Wonderful. Or cranberry. Can I take more sips? It's delicious. Yeah. This is actually a cranberry shrub with uh, soda well, water in it. So it actually has cranberry in it. And it has uh, balsamic and white vinegar. And it has... I think a little bit of orange peel and about five shots of brandy. I'm joking. What's brandy? brandy. <laughs> no, no brandy. This is uh, this is suitable so for exactly children. What's in there? It's brandy. I'm not giving my daughter brandy. Why? Because <laughs> I, I have a feeling you'd be a mean drunk. <laughs> what does that mean? What does that mean? You're not making sense. <laughs> I rarely do. I decided to take uh, Benjamin Franklin's milk punch and add the artificial ass's milk to it instead of regular milk. There's milk milk in it? There is milk in it. And not only that, so I actually decided to make this milk punch with uh, artificial ass's milk because apparently ass milk was, I'm not kidding, a popular uh, drink for children of that time. Yeah. Oh, look at it move in there, too. It's alive! So you're not supposed to shake it before you serve it? No, it makes it angry. As you might have heard, Stephen and the Reverend uh, chastised me for not following the directions, and you need the full-strength milk with the ass's milk. It was uh, kind of pledge-tasting, a little bit too uh, lemon-spritzy. All right. Ooh. All right, cheers. Wow. That tastes like uh, cleaning detergent. It does, actually. It smells like there's a lot of lemon in it. It is, uh, yeah, it tastes like, what is it, uh, the the, the stuff that you put on the, uh, to varnish wood? Pledge? Pledge. Tastes like pledge smells. Oh, yeah, that's, the the more you drink it, the the worse it tastes. Yeah, I I have not had any of, uh. So maybe they used the wrong kind of milk. Yeah, that's the problem. (laughs) There's brandy, a ton of brandy in this. And uh, the actual, you you have to curdle, the the lemon and the brandy curdles the milk. And it's supposed to wash the brandy. I find it difficult to believe that Ben Franklin would smell something that tasted like such a Brandy is like really brown. And there's, yeah, it just, I'm. I don't know what it did with the brownness of the brandy, but it's it's pretty clear. Keeping but. it simple with just the straight alcohol and the sugar was a lot more successful than this difficult. Yeah, drink. well, I mean, you it, know, I'll be grateful that Ben Franklin <laughs> was better at everything. Cork that up and put it away for when our worst You're enemy more comes over. Most disastrously, I made a hot flip, which, to listeners, is uh, essentially a uh, beer with rum and egg and in the book you can make a cold flip which you basically you know you mix it together stirring back and forth uh shifting from from cup to cup until it's whipped into foam the point is try and whip that uh the egg white into foam there's also a hot flip and the book definitely tells you to make it on the stove however i am nothing but a uh, experimental drinker. So I decided to try to make it, and try to make it in front of my friends by using what they would do back in the colonial times, a hot poker to foam up the drink. He's got a hot poker from the fire. Oh, now, Ed had had a fire in the fireplace, even though we had a troop full of kids in there. I was kind of wondering what possessed him to build a fire, and it's apparently so that he could... And the poker, yeah, it was yeah. resting in the fireplace, which seems very it's, unsafe. It's, it's kind of kind of foaming up here, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, wow. This is a hot flip. This is how they would make it back in the colonial times. Is 
smells like burning. The burning has a strong beer smell, though. And let me just tell you, it was gross. When Ed first had the pitcher out, I was looking at it, and it was totally clear on the top. And now it's got a big, thick head of almost like a beer. Does it look appetizing? No. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it's really it, it sure doesn't. <laughs> you know that fungus that grows in the mulch under bushes? <laughs> the foam is unbelievable. Why don't you taste it? Why don't you do the first taste test? Not with raw egg whites, like, floating. How could it not be cooked yet? It is like if you had a if you wanted a beer and quadrupled the foam and had random parts of egg in it. This is this is what this is. You I made I, you made it. You you have to drink it. This it looks there like, are long stringy things hanging off the fork back into the whatever the heck that is. <laughs> it looks like something from a horror movie. Let's let's do this again without the egg. I, I think you should drink that first. At least taste it. It might taste really good. Hell. No. So the lesson learned is that Ed deviated from the recipe in the book, so we don't have an accurate idea of what no. would have happened That's had true. he done it done it the, the correct way. All of Ed's degrees <laughs> in Here, history, hey, yeah. he did not learn about how to make a flip. Here. Fortunately, after the disaster of the flip, our last drink, the ginger liqueur, was much better received by our panel. It looks like it's strong. It smells strong. Yeah, it looks like a whiskey sour. Cheers. Cheers. You're good at this. It does smell like whiskey. That is good. You like that? Huh? That's good. Yeah. Reminds me of maple syrup. It does taste like it has syrup in it, but I feel like I could light my breath on fire right now. <laughs> any any uh, guesses? Any tastes other than whiskey that you? Whiskey and maple syrup. It's not. It's not whiskey. FYI. Is it brandy? Oh yeah, it is brandy. It is uh, ginger liqueur. It's uh, ginger. I got the actual ginger root and uh, vanilla, sugar, orange zest. Pinch of salt and a bunch of brandy. It's not too bad, good. actually. I like it. It's really I strong. You, I, I think like you it. could use this in a toddy. Would you rather have this or more of the last one? This. Really? Six nice. days a week and twice on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly enough, ginger liqueur became famous because it was prescribed to an ailing King Edward VII on his deathbed. So, if you would like to imbibe the drink of choice for dying monarchs, our whole panel recommends ginger liqueur. Well, that about wraps it up for Colonial Drinks. I think that's about all my voice can handle in this recording session. But before we go, fellas, I feel like I need to mention a historical event that happened over the past few days, which is that the Ringling Brothers Barnum & Bailey Circus is going to be closing for good. After 150 years, the longest-running circus show is coming to an end. The circus, the most popular mass entertainment of the 19th century will be no more, at least in the form that we we think of that classic circus. Were you guys circus fans by any chance? Well, I'll tell you. Overall, it's kind of it kind of makes me feel sad because generally I hate <laughs> as you know, I detest <laughs> change. <laughs> and um, the circus fading away seems like a, pa- a page turned in American history. It's a form of live entertainment that I think has has lost its flair for those with with shorter attention spans and people who are more drawn to uh, TV and and movies. But let's let's put that aside for a moment and let's just say that uh, um, when I think of Ringling Brothers, I am reminded, as we all are, because all roads lead to Rome, of Charlton <laughs> Heston in the greatest show on earth, a Horrible film, <laughs> 1952, which made absolutely no sense. And um, really, that's all I have to say about it. It's kind of uh, it's kind of meaningless, but you know, 
it's kind of, it's my reaction. I used to go when I was a, when I was a Cub Scout. I I kind of liked the circus coming to town. It it created a an energy reminiscent of. Uh, of another time. And, and it's kind of sad to me to see it go. This is coming from a guy who grew up in Greenwich Village in the, uh, in the eighties <laughs> and certainly had his exposure to freak shows, but still had a place in his heart for the circus. Yeah, it's true. You know, it's funny, John, you, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, you went right to the heart of the matter as you always <laughs> do. Strangely, whenever I went to the circus as a kid, I was always kind of bored. And I think that's because I was born and raised in the midst of the greatest circus known to man, which is Greenwich Village. Well, I don't know about you guys, but were you surprised when you read the news articles about the circus coming to an end that they still had in 2017 circus trains? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, John, I was not surprised. I'm not surprised because when I say that the anticipation of the circus coming to town, I mean, I remember as a kid the train coming in. I remember them offloading the circus the way they would have the big tent 140 years ago. And you could kind of feel that that energy of the circus coming to town. You know, it was like... um when you picked up the newspaper on Sunday and you looked at the TV guide to see what was playing <laughs> and there was a, a sense of anticipation for an event, things are so readily accessible. Need for entertainment is so easily satisfied that the sense of anticipation with the upcoming show really isn't there anymore except for, you know, maybe big movies. But when the circus was coming to town, you knew like months in advance and the posters that went up and then when, when they when they did it, it was a big news event here in uh, Manhattan when they were putting it together at Madison Square Garden. I guess that sense of childish anticipation of something magical that was happening is lost. I guess that's the page that's turned that's kind of sad for me. Well, there was a time when the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus was so important to the United States that during World War II, uh, they were exempt from the rail restrictions. Roosevelt made a special exception for the circus trains. He felt it was important for people to enjoy their circus. Do you guys remember, uh, and they did away with this many years ago, but... Do you remember how every year they featured some kind of freak, some kind of freak event or freak creature? And that oh, was I remember the, the unicorn. Yeah, that was the, the headliner, and that's what it comes to mind: the unicorn. That's the last one I recall, and there was a lot of controversy around it because of what they may have had to do to the horse. Um, that was it. Was a goat? It was a goat. Yeah, it was a goat, wasn't it? It was, it was pretty shady. I just looked it up, guys. I remember that very well. It was 1985, and I just sent you guys a link to an, a Village Voice article where they show they, they show pictures from the program. Very reputable publication. Yes. yes, a very reputable publication. Yeah. It's what you use when you, need, when you need to move and you need to wrap your dishes in something. <laughs> <laughs> you go to the Village Voice box. Um, but they also uh, share some of the great acts from uh, the past uh, 30, 40 years. Um, they had an elephant disco, so that would have been in the 70s. <laughs> they had um, the mighty meet you, the smallest man in the world. It's funny, if it's not that long ago, that the marketing brand for Ringling Brothers had not changed in, you know, well over 100 years that... That Harold Hill, you know, traveling yeah. snake oil pitch that they that they made still still made a big splash even then. It's really funny. Well, so fellas, I'll I'll just take a a page uh, from this nineteen uh, seventies Ringling Brothers program where there is a um, an animal trainer who uh, is only wearing a leopard print. <laughs> loincloth, uh, and shouting to the crowd, thank you, and may all your days be circus days. So to all of you, Barstool Historian listeners, may all your days be circus days. 
Uh, and join us very soon for another episode. We've got a great one that has to do with the inauguration. Hopefully we'll get it out in time for the inauguration. Um, if not, oh, well. <laughs> yes, <laughs> These things happen. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure when it's out in 2018, we'll, yeah, yeah, we'll in 2018, have many a laugh. It'll be a great the, episode. The It'll inauguration of our 45th and last president, Donald Trump. <laughs> Fellas. Until next time, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hi, this is John on my way home from the Lion's Arms Tavern. I just remembered something. I need to remind you that all past episodes of the Barstool Historian are now available on barstoolhistorian.com, iTunes, Stitcher.com, and the Stitcher app. You can also follow us on Twitter at the BS Historian, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash barstoolhistorian. And we always appreciate your reviews on iTunes. Also, I want to thank once again Stephen Grass and Reverend Michael Allen for their time joining us on this episode, and for Deirdre and Mariko at Quaker City Mercantile for helping to arrange our interview. We'll see you all very soon at the Lion's Arms Tavern. <laughs>